We'll be taking, Lord willing, a two-week break from Leviticus, of doing a lot of military stuff, and then so going back to some passages that are have spoken to me in the past, and I'll give credit for the introduction when it comes to um, Brother Peter Hong. He he tied the historical illustration that I'll be using to the passage. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. We'll introduce and then we'll read, because this is a story, we'll read parts of Scripture as we go along. Father, we ask now that we would come hearts that are hungry, hearts that are thirsty, that we would want to be molded, that we want to be reminded and rebuked and encouraged by your word. May we not be like Nebuchadnezzar, but may we be brave. May we be willing to take a stand with the encouragement and the power of Jesus be our hope and our salvation and our joy. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, what is a fate worse than death? What's something worth dying for? It's so important that you would be willing to risk your life, even to lay down your life. May 10th, 1940. The Nazi war machine, they began their blitzkrieg attack on on the Allied nations and soon they had smashed through the the Netherlands and Belgium and and slashed into France and they had divided the Allied armies and they they were on the verge of pushing a large amount of Allied troops into the sea at the French city of Dunkirk. About 350,000 troops were trapped and on the verge of either annihilation or capture. And at one point, these troops cabled just three words with a message back to England to, divide, to, to determine, describe the severity of their situation. But if not. But if not. And spurred on by their desperate plight, there were thousands of civilians joined the Navy in this small flotilla under a providential cloud cover to rescue 300, over 300,000 Allied soldiers, they went back across the British Channel. And the brave citizens decided that leaving their boys stranded on the, the beaches of France was a fate worse than death. And so they risked their lives, and many soldiers were saved and lived to fight another day. Well, our passage today tells the story of those three words, but if not. Scripture today talks about three faithful men who were convinced that there was a faith that was worse than death. So we're going to examine their story and see what God says about what makes life worth living. Now, since we're dipping into Daniel here, just a little bit of background. Daniel and other Jews were were exiled into Babylon, and quickly you start to see um, Nebuchadnezzar as this king, this powerful king, and he was the king. He was known as the, the ruler of the ancient known world. He was smart. He was cunning. He was powerful. And in chapter two, he has a dream that that wakes him up in a cold sweat. He he sees this statue of of various metals going from less precious to more precious to this gold head at the top. But at the bottom is this rickety base. This statue is is tottering and this stone comes down and rolls and smashes the statue. And eventually the stone grows and becomes a mountain. And Daniel says, well, these are the various kingdoms of the world. And you, O king, you're at the top. You're the golden head. But someday they will be smashed and replaced by another kingdom, a kingdom that seems to be hidden right now. And the message to Nebuchadnezzar and us 
from Daniel was, O king, choose your Choose wisely. Which kingdom are you going to invest in? And so Nebuchadnezzar was extremely relieved and he rewarded Daniel and promoted his friends. But did he listen to the message? What kingdom did he choose? Well, we see in chapter 3 that he doubles down. Let's read the first seven verses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits or 90 feet and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship so immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sounds of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he builds a golden image. Now, this is ironic because what were the fading, falling images that the Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream? Well, it was a statue of metal, and, and he was very much on the top of the head of gold. If you look at chapter 2, verse 31, Daniel says, You, O king, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. That was, the, that was the dream. And now he sets this statue of gold up on the plain of Dura, probably near Babylon, his pride and joy. Babylon was the jewel of the known world. He sets it up in a very visible place. Now he brings all of his officials out there. You read in verse 2, and then you hear in verse 3, you say, wait, he just, he just said that, that, that list of all these people. And it, the, the story is often repetitive for emphasis. But here I think Daniel is also building a picture of the stakes. There's a stadium, so to speak, of people. And everyone who is important is there. Anyone who is anything has come. And then there's the music mentioned several times. All, all, of the, all the majesty, all the grandeur, all, all the spectacles. If you can say this is important, it's there. You know, today there would be fireworks, there would be a stealth fighter flyover, there would be 100,000 people roaring. This is what's there. This is a spectacle. All eyes of anyone who is important are on this stadium. I remember quite some time ago, I was a teenager, so it was whenever the Brazil won the World Cup in the 90s, but one of their young players at the end of the finals match, where it was clear that they were going to win, uh, went over to change his jersey, and as he's, as he's getting back onto the field, he's sticky and he's having trouble getting on. It was kind of funny, and one of the commentators, just having some fun with him, because he, he contributed to them winning, said, it's okay, young man, there's only a couple billion people watching. All the eyes of who would matter are there, and, and this is what the king says, bow down, and worship this image. And what does it stand for? Well, the greatness and glory of Nebuchadnezzar. He set it up. 
It is almost as if God warned him in the dream, don't invest your life in fading kingdoms. And he gets that warning. And what does he do? Just the opposite. Have you ever done that? God says this, and we choose something else. And so he decides to prop up his rule by forcing people to worship this image. Now, for most people back then, this wasn't a big deal. Everyone had multiple gods. It would be okay to worship one more, even if you're really worshiping the human person who made it. And so everyone is out there humoring the king. Except for three faithful Jewish men who refuse to bow. Followers of the true God who decide not to go along. Now go back to that stadium imagery. And can you imagine if everyone else is taking the knee Everyone else is bowing down. And right in the front, there are these three men who stand stock still. The disobedience does not go unnoticed. Let's go to verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. That every man who hears the sound, the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar does not take this lightly. Let's keep reading. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought the men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of instrument to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The king's angry, brings them forward, but says, you know, I'm an all-around good guy. I'll give you another chance. Bow down to my statue or burn and notice the deal. Just bow and you'll live. It's just a little thing. It's just, it's just a tiny bit. But if you don't, you're dead. Now, what does this say about the king? Well, he certainly doesn't believe the dream that he had. He, he says, who is the God who will deliver you? I, I don't know. Maybe the God who sent you the dream? But he says, no, I don't, I don't believe that. None of that. I believe my kingdom is the world power. I believe that in the reality of this furnace. This is real. Bow or you will burn. God's followers, we will always feel the squeeze to conform. In China, in the state, approved churches or prison. Our African brothers and sisters deny Christ. Certainly don't talk to him, about him to your family if you become a Christian. America, don't disagree with my lifestyle. Jesus says some pretty unpopular things. It doesn't matter where you are in history. He's always going to say something unpopular. And right now, these are quickly on their way to hate speech. Believe those things, talk about those things, live those things, be prepared to face the heat. So how do these three men respond to this pressure? Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, that may sound cocky. We don't need to answer you. But it's really a humble confidence. What they're saying is, so King, there is, there is nothing we can do here to make you happy. Our God can save us. We expect him to deliver us. But, but even if you won't, we will not serve your statue, bow down to you, worship you. There is a fate worse than death, and this is it. And those words, but if not, were the three words that were cabled from Dunkirk to the British people. And back then they knew the stories of their Bible. And so when they heard them, they realized two things immediately. One, that their soldiers would need almost a miracle to escape. And two, that they were determined not to give in. And that's where these three men were. Oh, King, you do have incredible power, but not so nearly as much as our God. If God does not save us, we would prefer to die than serve you and worship your image. So here we see his application. Serving an image is a fate worse than death. What does that mean for us? Very few of us physically bow down and worship an image today, let alone being forced to do so. So why is, why is this so important? Well, the key is this, this, this idea of worship. The idea of assigning worth, worth, worthship to God. And the Bible is practical because we do this all the time. We assign something, make it the center of our lives, live for it, dream about it, talk about it, and finally you serve it and you give your life control of it if it takes control. I remember a soldier who would say, I was asked, hey, hey you want to come to chapel? We're going to worship God. And he said, oh, no, no. My, my house of worship on Sunday is my TV because I go watch my favorite football team. Right? You can talk about it in, in, in religious ways sometimes. And there's two reasons why worship matters. First, it says you can't control your life. You will be controlled by something else. The, the, the false modern gospel is that you can redefine yourself. You get to even reinvent and recreate yourself and make you to be whatever you want. But you're still following outside influences. At the end of the day, it's not true. You will be controlled by outside motivations, forces. As Bob Dylan says, we all have to serve something. We do. Second, you become what you worship. Notice, notice how you start to become like the people or, or things that you love. In this chapter, I love how it bends over backwards to show how worshiping dead things makes you the living dead. There's, there's really a mocking tone here that, that I tried to bring out a little bit in my, my reading. The image that the people are bowing to, it's dead. As, as, as we read in Psalm 115, it has, it has eyes and, and a nose and a mouth, but, but it can't do anything. It has no senses. It's, it's lifeless. The, the fact, this image is set up by Nebuchadnezzar. The text says nine times it is set up. It's propped up by someone who is human. He, he must create it and care for it and enforce it. And any time there's something that we're tempted to see, wow, that is, that is so majestic, that, that is so powerful. If only we had the influence of, of, of Google or Twitter, and you know, if, if we just had this on our side, then everything would be different. The armies of the world that seem so impressive now will someday seem antiquated. And, and if we put our hopes in that, if that becomes what we live for, 
you become dead too. Look at the people. They're, they're trapped in this idol worship and the system. It's, it's, it's kind of a mechanical, repetitive, mindless giving of themselves. There's, note the, 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 the repetition of, of them, them bowing down. Is, it's almost an addiction. They're just going along. They're being pushed into lifeless worship. What's the contrast between the three followers? They're alive. They're vibrant. They're standing up. They're principled. They're something, they have something to die for and something to live for. Do you see the contrast there? The the crowd is willing to worship a dead image to save their lives, and so they become dead like it too. These three men, they refuse to worship the dead image, and they are the ones who act the most alive. And we're all all meaning makers, right? In In our worship, you assign value to something, the thing that you put at the center of your life. And, and, there was a quote that says, the, the, the worth of a soul is measured by the excellency of its love. If you love something that's wonderful and beautiful, you will become like that. Um, yet we as Christians, we too can loan our hearts out to idols. And it could not, might not even be something obvious. Where you're worshiping something else, you might take something, a good thing, into a God thing. Do you ever notice that when you start to be concerned about your appearance, for say? It's okay to, to have a, a, a professional or a, a beautiful appearance. But when you start to do that to, the, to an extent, then you start thinking about yourself, your image, what you're looking at, how other people perceive you in a necessary way. Perhaps you want to care for your family, and so you're thinking about finances, but it can drive you to the point where you become calculating. You start taking your trust off of the Lord. And, and if this thing that was good becomes your God, then you start going from living to being dead and worthless like it. Never notice that when you take something good, something that, that you find, this is, this is controlling me, and I, I find that, yeah, I'm, I am less in love with the Lord right now. Right? There's, I'm less excited to go be with God's people. I'm less excited to read His Word. I, I'm, I'm less concerned about ministry and mission to the world. Get more wrapped up in something else. Generally less love for other people. You're becoming what you worship. And so we need to confess our idolatry and come back to the Lord when you see that happen. All of us, even when we're made alive in Christ, we will do that as we battle ourselves. But if instead you confess that God is the creator, the world and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, when you put him at the center, then he'll change you to be more like him. So you see here these, these men, fearless, <coughs> humble, respectful, but fearless. When you come and you worship God and you are genuine, then you get to rejoice in the fact that God has brought you into his life, that, that I am saved. You were reminded, as we were, we were reminded this morning, that I am saved from, from my own sin and uncleanliness, and now I am made new, and I'm aware of this. I get to rejoice in this. Jesus is so bold as to say, John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And don't you want that? As people interact with you, they say, I notice something, I, I notice a joy that, that you, are, you are giving, that you are loving, that you are concerned. I you know, I know right now as a person who is still physically drained, sometimes it seems like I don't have much to give. You might not even be able to see it, but the Lord is, when I, when I, when I call out to the Lord, it's a, it's a difference in attitude and mindset. He can use that. We want that. Nebuchadnezzar does not. Going back to verse 19, you see he orders the execution. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats and their outer garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell burned, bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He's out of control like his furnace. And yet who has the power? Let's read the rest of the story. Starting at verse 26, the Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared Shadrach. Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, there was no smell of fire that came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own king. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speak anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house is laid in ruin. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of of Babylon. Now, what do you make of this stunning deliverance? You shouldn't read a story and, and make a, a principle out of this. You shouldn't expect that God will get you out of every situation. Here, these three faithful men were a token. They were, they were a demonstration to this king who thought his kingdom was so great that he is not in control. So they are a token, not a blueprint of suffering for all believers. And tell Nebuchadnezzar, your dream is coming true. This God is powerful. It doesn't matter how, how much power and wealth you have amassed, they cannot compare to my kingdom. The furnace says something even more important about the followers of God. He gives them true life. Right? This, when you follow God, when you go through that fire, you become fully alive. I'll use the example of my, my brother as a chaplain. He had a, a moral objection to the way that the COVID vaccine was produced, what has to do with the, the, the aborted babies. And, and so because of that, he refused to take it. And he was willing to put his career down. Um, it was different, there was differing views. There were many Christians who weren't, but, but that, was his, that was his conviction. And um, he, he allowed his career to be sidelined for, for a year or two. He wasn't able to go to school. He's just doing that now. And um, now, now it's, it's back to normal and he's allowed to continue. But I told him, I said, brother, I want men like you who are willing to speak your conviction, what you believe is God is true, and to live that regardless of the consequences. I want men like you to be chaplains. 
It encourages me to see how God has protected you, but also how, how you are following Christ and, and, and you are obeying him as, as, he, as you understand it. And when you follow God, you become fully alive. And, and this deliverance is really a resurrection picture here. The furnace symbolizes death and judgment. In Scripture, fire is a picture of judgment. Just listen to two passages that talks about fire as, as something that consumes everything in sight. Isaiah 66 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and there shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It's really a picture of hell in the future, but God's judgment is fire. And then in Ezekiel 21, he says, I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath and will deliver you into the hands of brutish men to skillfully destroy you. You shall be fuel for the fire, this prophecy against Ammon, uh, Ammon, a wicked country. So with, with this understanding that fire equals death and judgment, well, God takes his followers through death and out the other side. Right? This victory was so complete that the ropes were burned off, the symbols of their captivity was destroyed, and yet the fire that killed the soldiers has no effect on his followers. Their hair was not singed, their clothes were immaculate, they didn't even smell like smoke. Daniel is all about unexpected reversal. God takes, takes people from, in, in, from exile and, in, and it brings them from death to life. And who was this fourth person? Nebuchadnezzar says it's an angel. We don't know for certain. But it's very much likely a, a, a Christophany or a theophany. It's the appearance of Christ beforehand. As one commentator puts it this way, regardless, if you follow Jesus, at the end of time, one like the Son of God will not forsake you in death, and he will lead you out of the grave in new resurrection life. Simple what he will do. What he already has done in making us alive spiritually, and will do in the new resurrection. And in the meantime, this one like the Son of Man walks with you in the furnace. He's the good shepherd that laid his life down for a sheep. He went through it first, and now he's our high priest and king, and the Picture in Revelation as the priest that tends the lampstands of the church in the midst of their persecution and suffering. Your Lord has been to the furnace and he walks with you through it. So I ask you today, who are you serving? There's two groups of people. Those who are the living dead who bow down to mechanically follow dead images and those who are the faithful followers of Jesus. If, if you have not made Jesus the center of your life and you say, yeah, you know, to be honest, I'm like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm still building my own kingdom. I will say there is a fate worse than death here. Nebuchadnezzar is rejecting that kingdom of God. He's rejecting the king who came in the person of Jesus. And you are in danger of being dead, not just dead like, but dead forever. The Bible talks about this judgment, this eternal torment in hell. As a pastor caring for your soul, I want to say, realize the danger of rejecting God's kingdom and choosing your own. Jesus came and lived this life of incredible love. That's where we focus, but remember his first recording teachings? We're hearing it often. The Gospel of Mark, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want you to understand that if you've made your life about something else than God, that's idolatry, then, then you are apart from his grace and you are dead like the thing that you worship and you only have one hope for survival, that you place your faith in the one who's died for you and say, yes, I claim him. As my Lord, I want him to make me alive. He's beaten death. He's risen from the grave. I trust the promises of the gospel. Have you done that with Jesus today? See your Lord.
see your king. To faithful followers of Jesus, you say, me faithful? But I, I identify with, with the idolater. I identify with people. My love goes elsewhere, prone to wander, as it says in the hymn. I, I fall so short. But you can run back to his grace. When you feel that pressure to conform, when it seems like you are in a stadium and everyone else is bowing down and the full court press is there, just sign this denial. Just be silent. Don't stand up for God's truth. Just just do it in your house. Just be inclusive. All roads lead to God. Can't we just agree? Just look the other way. Everyone else does it. Remember the furnace. Remember the empty tomb. You have a special grace because Jesus has already been faithful under pressure. You can go to him. And when you fail, you can go back for grace and go back into the battle. So God shows you this better way. You can be confident. You can be humble. You can stand your ground and say, but if not, God will walk with me through the furnace, whatever that looks like here. And why do I know? Because of three other words. He is risen. Please pray with me. Father, Jesus says that if the world hates him, then in some way they will hate us. They will oppose us if if we're being faithful, even when we are humble and respectful. You've given us, each one of us, a different step, a path to walk. Would we go out looking back to your deliverance of these three faithful men and then seeing our Lord who is risen from the dead later from Daniel comes one shining like the, like the sun brilliant in all of his glory and authority that he is the one that is ruling ultimately and when we live for him whatever pressure we face may we support each other may we pray for each other we remember once again our brothers and sisters in Africa where this Pressure to conform or renounce is stronger than in our country. Could we go out with a joy knowing that Jesus is our Savior and our Deliverer? For we pray this in his name. Amen.